Hey guys, welcome to episode 161 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that all is well and that you are ready for some true crime today. We did something really exciting last week that we wanted to tell you about. We released our 100th episode on Patreon. It's pretty crazy. I know. It's hard to believe that we've been in the podcast game for so long that we're up to 100 episode, uh, 100 bonus episodes. Right. we got to clarify that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's awesome. So we don't do it too often, but we just wanted to let you know that we do have a Patreon page. And if you want to join, you get two full-length bonus episodes a month, plus ad-free episodes and a sticker. Also, a shout-out at the end of our regular episodes, like there's going to be one at the end of today's show. In addition to getting two bonus episodes a month, you also get the entire backlog of the 100 episodes, which is a pretty good deal for just $5 a month. So if you want to join, please visit patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And just one more thing. I'm sorry, guys. Usually our intros aren't this long. But if you have those spooky stories, send them in to us because we want to bring you an awesome listener story episode. And we've been doing this for six years. It's going to be like our seventh listener story episode. So we are excited to bring you some good stories. And it's always nice to communicate with listeners and be able to talk to you. So that's it. Oh, if you have the story, send them to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And that is all the housekeeping done. So now it's time to settle in and ask, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course I am. In the late 2000s, Silicon Valley saw an exodus of young entrepreneurs who wanted to recreate what it meant to create businesses and become wealthy in California. In the years of the tech boom and the dot-com bubble, people came from all over in a warped recreation of the California gold rush. The goal was to make money, and a lot of it, and many did. But going to Silicon Valley meant that they would have to deal with the colder San Francisco weather and its red-hot real estate prices. This is why many young investors and entrepreneurs chose to move south to sunny Orange County, California. The real estate was cheaper, and the weather of Southern California was perfect for the new lifestyle of these men and women. Gone were the days of slaving over your business. They wanted carefree and fun, and in Orange County, they could find both. One of these people who chose to leave during the tech migration was Chris Smith. But soon after his move and making a lot of money, Chris Smith would suddenly leave California for a trip around the world. But what would cause the man who had everything to get up and leave those everythings behind? Had he done something he was trying to escape? Or was there someone or something he was hiding from? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The beach communities of Orange County, California, offered Chris Smith the low-key lifestyle he craved. And it also gave him the opportunity to make the money he craved as well. Chris had been raised in Santa Cruz, 
where are my lost boy fans at? Because that's always what I think of. When <laughs> you would. <laughs> I think Santa Cruz, um, which is a beach town. He surfed there, but he very much preferred the warmer weather surfing that Laguna Beach had to offer. And that's where he's going to be moving. The 31-year-old was described as a kind, gentle soul. It was said that he was passionate about anything involving water. Surfing, water skiing, he loved it all. Since he was young, his family would vacation on Kelly Lake, which is close to Santa Cruz. And before he got into the world of computers, Chris's goal was to become a professional wakeboarder, but it was an injury that would put an end to that goal. Although he was laid back in his everyday life, Chris Smith was intense about making money and being successful. In the late 2000s, Chris worked in the lead generation business. So what is lead generation? Well, lead generation is a phrase used in the tech world that refers to using the television or other technologies, nowadays that means apps and phones, to create sales leads that are sold to companies. It's basically when your information is collected when you visit sites. And over the years, obviously, the lead generation business has changed and it's morphed into even listening to you. Like It's like when you start talking about something and all of a sudden it pops up on your phone. That's lead generation technology. That literally happens all the time. I know, but you could turn that off on your phone. And I always say, John, turn it off on your phone. And then you say, you don't want to. <laughs> you know what? It, it's weird because it's it's extremely annoying, right? But then at the same time, I almost like it because it's a reminder that, you know what? It's something that I want. So I don't, I don't really know how to approach it because I feel like it's so invasive, but yet it makes me spend money. <laughs> That's the bad thing. It makes yeah. me spend money. So mm -hmm. like I could be talking about, oh my God, I really liked this thing with Wayfair and then it pops up. Or it's like when you have something in your cart somewhere and then all of a sudden an ad for it pops up. So right. that's something similar as well. For me, it's always something to do with my computer where I can like edit faster or play better or something like that. Yes. And those things always happen. We do have two entirely different lead generations. 100%. <laughs> you and I. But this is the 2000s. So the software and ideas of this lead generation are nothing like they are today. The software was just being created. So it's basically in its infancy. But Chris understood it well, and he was very innovative with the concept. Chris Smith had originally worked for a company called LG Technologies, and he was making decent money there. But he also knew he was making the company even more. So when he met someone in the industry that he believed had the same vision as him, a man named Ed Shin, the two of them decided to leave their jobs and take a leap of faith and create their own business. And that's kind of like, why make money for someone else when you can make it for yourself? If he's the creative mind or the talent, I guess you could say, behind this company, he's like, why am I making them millions and I'm making not even a fraction of that? So it makes sense why he would leave. Yeah, I mean, definitely. But I think a lot of times most people don't do that, even if they are the creative mind, because you have to think it's a, it truly is a leap of faith, you know, and yeah, in theory, that sounds great. But, you know, put into practice and to find people that will create it for you, you know, a way to house it, all those things you have to take into consideration. That's a scary jump. Yeah, because you could potentially fail. And 
it is entirely different being an employee and being the person that owns the business. Yeah, I mean, you kind of take on all the risk. Exactly. But these two created a company that did similar work as LG Technologies. And, of course, they're working in the world of lead generation. And they named their company the 800 Exchange. The two were a perfect pair. Chris was the adventurer, the the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants risk-taker that was balanced out by Ed Shin, the careful family man and churchgoer. He was like the perfect business operator, and Chris was the creative. And that was the dynamic between the two. They were like yin and yang, and it worked very well together. But the company did very well. In their first year, they pulled in 5 to $8 million in profit. Wow. Insane. And Chris rewarded himself with the purchase of a white Range Rover. And he leased an apartment on the Pacific Coast Highway. So each morning and night, he was just a walk to the ocean to swim or to surf. It was perfect for him. He also spent the money on his family, with whom he was very close. He would buy things for his parents and chose to take his brother on these lavish surfing vacations. One place they loved to go to was Costa Rica. As time went on, Chris told his brother that he didn't want to take him on vacations his whole life. He wanted to give him a life where he could do that himself. So he wanted to give back to his little brother. And he offered Paul a spot at the 800 exchange in client relations because he knew Paul was really good with people. Paul would later say that Chris was always there for him. They had always been closer than any other brothers that he knew. And Chris wanted to protect him and provide for him. And he felt that giving Paul a job in the company would definitely set him up for life. And Paul was extremely grateful for this opportunity. So, I mean, that was wonderful. And as you can imagine, that made his parents really happy because now they don't have to worry financially about their children's future. For two years, Chris and Ed grew the 800 exchange. They were happy with what they created. But Chris, ever the wanderer and adrenaline junkie, didn't want to be tied down. And he feared that as time went on, that the company was becoming too corporate, as it had to bend to the needs of their clients. It was inevitable. In the lead generation business, that was eventually what was going to happen to them. They weren't going to be like grassroots anymore. They would have to become corporate. But Chris just didn't like that aspect of it. He was a free spirit, and he hated corporate America, which was why he came to Orange County in the first place. So he was talking to Ed and his family about getting out. This didn't surprise anyone. They knew that Chris's plan had been to work really hard for a short period of time and then retire early and live off of his earnings. So in early June of 2010, Chris began to make exactly those arrangements. He wanted to sell his share of the company to Ed and then use the money to travel and surf the world. And that's just what he did. On June 10th, 2010, six days after meeting with Ed Shin and getting his share of the business, he sent an email to his parents and his brother. He told them in a correspondence that he was, and I quote, taking his share of the money and I'm off. He explained to them that he just needed to escape. He had sold everything and he was going sailing around the world. 
He said he was going to go on his adventure and he was excited about it and that when the time was right, they would all get back together. Chris's parents knew that their son was a free spirit and doing this was something that he would do. But the only thing that gave them cause for pause was the fact that he had done it so quickly and without saying goodbye in person. He had gone on long-term trips before, but he had always said goodbye. They thought that this was odd, but maybe just that the pressure of the company had been getting to him, and Paul did confirm that there had been a lot of tensions within the 800 exchange, and they thought he just really needed to get out and clear his head. So that's why they didn't really act or say anything to him about not saying goodbye to them in person. Both of his parents and Paul wished him well. They told him that they were happy for him and asked him to please keep them updated with everything that he was experiencing. They would live vicariously through him. Now, Paul also thought that this was odd because he had seen his brother about a week prior, prior to his meeting with Ed Shin, and he had not mentioned anything about leaving. He did say he had a meeting to go get his share of the company, but he also knew his brother was an adventure seeker and he was spontaneous. So Chris was the person who would just say, by the way, I'm leaving tomorrow to go on this trip to Europe. So that's why they were like, this is totally normal. And of course, Paul also wanted to respect his brother. And he knew that his brother was feeling tied down and really stressed. So he wanted him to have a good time. Yeah, I mean, that is a little weird. I mean, you know, if every other time that he went away for a while, you know, he would always reach out to his family members in person or or even just speaking, you know, on the phone or let's say, you know, to do for, to go from that then to an email, I feel I do feel is a little sus, and I think maybe that is a red flag. You know, um, the only thing that's interesting though is if someone wants to pull out of a business that you co-own, I it's not that simple. And it's like, okay, if you want to get rid of your shares, that's one thing, but you do have to have the money to buy them. If Ed wants to buy, um, you know, him out, I mean, that also takes a lot of money now on Ed's end to now get him out. Whereas it would be easier to stay in and take a, a sabbatical and like just still continue to get paid, even even if it was a portion Right. Um, of what he used to. At least he can still go do what he wants to do. But I guess this wouldn't be a true crime podcast episode if uh, if if what I'm saying was the way it, to- <laughs> uh, it went down. So. Right. You're thinking rationally about yeah. this, but you know something bad went on here. Yeah. Um, right away, like I'm thinking like he's very free spirited. And right. if he's like a, a, a suit and tie, family man, you know, straight and narrow kind of guy, I think Ed might have a problem with him pulling out. Like uh, and leaving the business. Well, it meant more money for Ed. It, it does mean more money for Ed, but I also think that if you're going to lose your visionary or one of your visionaries that's building, um, you know, you know, into the future, you're building new ways of doing things, and now you might not have that. That could hurt the company in the long term. Right. You know, you're definitely going to have to look for new talent per se. Right, and that might be hard to do. Maybe you know, it's not as easy as you know we all think it is. You know. Right, because. We're not involved in that. No, of course field. not. But I could imagine that it would take time to you. 
you definitely things would be halted for a little bit while you're waiting to hire someone that is a visionary that also is going to I don't know have to be paid a really a lot of money yeah so yeah I, I could imagine that that would put strain on the company but what we're going to do before we get any further with the story is we're going to take a break to hear from the sponsor of today's show So as the months went on, Chris would send sporadic emails to his family about all of the beautiful locations he would visit. He went all over the place. Johannesburg, India, Morocco, Germany, Turkey, Egypt, Mumbai, Rwanda, South Africa, Czech Republic, Austria, and Greece. Obviously not in that order because that would make no geographical sense, but those were all of the places that he had traveled. Although his family was happy for him, they were getting a bit sad because they missed him. They were a very tight-knit family, and they always spent the holidays together. And as they approached, Chris's mother feared that they wouldn't get to see him. Here are some examples of the emails that Chris would send to his family. So we have the emails. Really? Yes. Okay. So this is an email that was sent to Paul from Chris on September 18th. E and I went there. You ever hear from her? She tried making me feel guilty, but fuck that. Tiffany left after we sailed the horn. She's talking about Africa, but is meeting with me in two weeks. So Tiffany is a Playboy model that he met during his travels that was accompanying him during his um, like legs of his trip. Okay. So I would say he's pretty much living the life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She had some previous gigs that she got paid a lot of cash to do for Playboy. Heard you were sick. What did you have? You okay now? LP sent a letter to my lawyer, and in it, they accused me of stealing money. So LP is someone that he used to work with at LG Technologies. Okay. Okay. That's good to maybe keep in mind, you know, in the back burner. So he goes on to say, that is nut fuck. The first mate, this is in parentheses, the first mate on the yacht I've been on says that, and I love the term. It's like the equivalent of blue balls or a bullshit situation. Not sure what I'm going to do. They want $1 million. They can suck it. I made them so much money and built that entire voice deviation. Oh, well, I guess I'm chilling here for a lot longer than I thought. I'll check in with you on Monday. This cafe is about an hour from the condo I rented for a week. And, th- and that's the end of the letter? That's the end of that email. Uh, okay. Uh, I say letter. You know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So hold on. A few, a few things here. And I'm going to pull a page right out of that documentary that we watched about John Benet Ramsey when they had the, uh, that was it, linguist? When they, they looked at the writing and stuff? Yes. Okay. The writing expert. I'm not an expert, but I'm letting you know <laughs> that this does sound a little grandiose. Like he's traveling the world. He's with Playboys. He's this... Playboy models. Playboy, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he's like this Tony Stark, like Iron Man guy traveling the world, enjoying life. Yeah. He's making it seem a little too good. Yes. Now, it sounds like somebody that knows him, but not enough. Okay, I like that. You know, like, 
surface level. It was like if you were to walk up to me and have a conversation with me for a few hours, I might you know divulge a few things about my life, but you're not going to know how I speak, my terminologies that I might use. You know, my, you know, the red flag kind of stuff, you know. Okay, so you're thinking immediately this is not Chris? This is not Chris. Okay. This is not Chris. Right. Because I think at some point, especially if it was getting closer to the holidays, we'd be seeing him reaching out to his family, like, with his voice. Okay. Right? Because I think that's a little suspicious as well. Till now, we're, how long are we going and we're only receiving emails? He's talking about all these crazy things he's doing. Right. So he left in, in June and it's now September 18th. Yeah. I mean, listen, if I had to, if I even had to go out and buy a sat phone and call you, <laughs> you know, via, I'm in the mountains of, uh, you know, uh, I'm in the tropical rainforest, well, I'd let you know. Well, that's because you love me endlessly and can't go without talking to me for a whole day. You know, you're, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but seriously, though, if you are doing these things that you are talking about in your emails, right. wouldn't you at some point... If you do go back to civilization at a cafe, wouldn't you want to call your family and yeah. say, hey, check me out, guys? Even if you're, like, calling collect, I mean, because it is 2000, you could still do that. Yeah, you could do a lot. You could do a lot of things right now. So this email is very suspicious. It is. And it also gives us a little bit of insight to some troubles that they might have been having at the 800 exchange if he's referring to former business partners wanting money from him. So... Is Chris leaving because he's escaping money woes? Or like you said, is this potentially not Chris? We have two potential options here. And I just want to say one more thing about this. All right. How perfect is it that Chris is a go-getter, an adrenaline junkie, someone that can leave you know, weeks at a time, and it wouldn't be suspicious? It's the right. perfect person to try to kill <laughs> you know yeah. someone that you know that would go mia yes and has the means to do it correct and the parents aren't or oh, parents or family whatever isn't going to go to the police right away well i mean yeah because at the end of the day he's a very wealthy man in his 30s his parents aren't going to be intervening in his life that much no i'm just saying he's chris is the perfect target unfortunately right so another email that was sent to paul and this is from october 20th read i'm in mumbai when I said roots, I meant hardcore roots. Flew to Germany. He's referring to like, I got down to our family's roots because they're German on their father's side. Um, he said, I flew to Germany and then went to the Austrian Alps. I made my way through Prague, Greece, and Turkey. I'm not coming back to pay nobody. I always told you, once I was out, I'm out. Make your money and come to Vienna and we will go to dad's hometown and kick it there. Fuck LP and everyone back in the U.S. I've found what I love. Moving around and seeing the whole world. I can't believe I almost trapped myself. After this, I'm headed to Cyprus, then Africa. I'm guessing that these emails are going to the brother, right? Yeah, these okay. are both of those emails went to Paul. Gotcha. And these emails were a bit all over the place. Chris almost seemed manic and not like himself. But they did reveal that he was in some trouble with his previous employer. But more on that later. In one email back to Chris, his father, Steve, asked Chris if he would please call his mother, Debbie. He said she is worried about you and she would just love to hear your voice. And that would basically put her at ease. 
In an email sent by Debbie herself, she wrote the following, I miss you, I love you, I want to see you, please send some pictures. But in all of his responses, Chris seemed to completely ignore what they were saying, and he was only talking about his travels. It was as if he was completely detached from his previous world. And when his family would insist he called, he would just complain of no cell service because he was choosing to visit places where, as he described them, were off the grid. It was a very frustrating situation, to say the least. In the past, Chris had gone off before, but when he did, he always made it a point to stay involved in family life. But there was something very different about this trip. But on the other hand, he was also an adult, and he seemed to be happy, so his family was in a bit of a hard spot. When asked when and if he would be coming home for the holidays, or ever, by his parents because they were concerned for him, Chris sent the following email to his father on December 17th. You know I've always wanted to leave the States. It was a dream of mine to live free and be on my own. I got a nice payout and have more than half of it saved up in an offshore bank so I can move back to Rica, meaning Costa Rica, when I'm done. I needed to clear my head because I was drinking too much, even doing drugs, mixing drugs to see if I would even die from it because I didn't want to live anymore, so I took off. Now I'm getting crazy emails from you and mom. I'm basically saying I needed to leave. I was going to kill myself and you're giving me shit for doing what's right for me and that's not okay. And then a second email was sent to his father on the same day. Dad, I'm fine. Stop tripping. I just needed to get some shit out of my head. This last year has been the worst of my life. I've even contemplated suicide when I was drinking heavily and taking all that Lunesta you gave me. I want to move to Costa Rica permanently and get Paul down there to surf with me for a bit so we can child that software platform I started. It's going to be pretty big once I get it off the ground. I just can't have LP ever find out about it. A lot of their shit per developed crosses over into what I created. And what's going on? Is Paul in trouble? His emails didn't seem like everything was wrong. And then he signs it CS. So there's a there's kind of like a lot to cover there. Now that second part was in reference to his father telling him that his brother was upset. And like Paul was upset because Chris had gone off without saying goodbye and now he's not going to see him for the holidays. And now the whole family was upset because of this new recent confession that Chris had contemplated or even possibly attempted suicide. Um, cause, so that's kind of like scary. So they're feeling like, should we back off? Should we be more attentive to try and help him? Is he in like a bad mental state now? I think that this response put a lot on the family and was trying to make them feel a little guilty. Even in that second email, he was saying like, dad, you gave me the Lunesta. I think that the more that we continue to, well, that I keep keep hearing these emails, I think the biggest indicator that this is not him, okay, and I'm still going to go down that road already, is that whoever's doing this 
feels like it's only it's getting to that point where it's not going to work anymore. And what they're trying to do is to show that he had suicidal tendencies and that he's going down a bad road and that he's truly hiding from someone based on bad decisions that he's made with the company, let's say, and people that he owes things to. And also the intellectual properties of the other company if they find out. Right. Um, That's what I'm gathering from that. So you think this person that isn't Chris is setting up like a reason for the emails to stop. So if these emails stopped and say an investigator looked at it, they would say, oh, well, there is mention of suicide in these emails or um, being upset about owing a million dollars. There being other intellectual property that can't that would interfere with any future business this person goes to create. Correct. But now this is the thing. We could keep trying to come up with what's going on here. The bottom line is once, if if police do get involved, I think there is a paper trail here because there's no way that someone's going to go off the grid like that. Yeah. And you're going to be able to pay cash for every single thing and that there is no way that a card wasn't used or you weren't seen somewhere. Right. Um, you know, I just don't think it's possible nowadays to just completely like fall off the map unless someone is involved in killing you. Correct. And how much money did he get if half of it's in an offshore account and he's only using the other half? Yeah. Now, like, as I, I s- got in the wrong field. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, yeah, I think we both did. But listen, I mean, with that being said, I understand that people do go missing all the time and we never know what happens. But True. I'm just trying to say, though, somebody who has money that has a lifestyle like this there's no way there's no trail of him going to an airport or taking a, any kind of train or public transportation right especially because he's doing so much travel exactly so that's why i'm saying that obviously there are people that do go missing and we never hear from them again but in this case i don't think it's possible right no i agree with you so on that very same day december 17th chris's brother paul emailed chris and tried to make plans with him for the two of them to get together and meet up for a surfing trip in Costa Rica. Because everyone was worried, and they felt like if Paul could see him, that would make everyone feel a lot better. So a lot's happening in this just, like, one day. So on December 17th, he gets a response from his brother that he found to be a bit unhinged. So again, this is after Paul said, let's plan a surfing trip to Costa Rica. Chris writes back, I'm so sorry I missed your birthday. I've gotten so lost. I traveled through Rwanda, Congo, Egypt, and now I'm headed to South Africa. I think I lost my mind completely. I have to get to Europe so I can at least get to Costa Rica. We can meet there where we last surfed. When do you think you can get there? If I can get there in February, can you come? Now, at this point, the Smith family felt like they didn't know who or what they were dealing with. Chris had mentioned that he had messed with drugs and alcohol, and they were thinking that maybe he was again. But still, they felt something was odd. Chris, although an adventurer, was a planner, and he seemed to have no plan here. He was a detail-oriented person, and this there was nothing detailed about this trip it seemed like he was just wandering to random locations 
And whenever Chris did have these long-term trips in the past, there was always like a travel plan that he had. And he also would have jumped at any opportunity to go surfing with Paul. He had his whole life. So it did cross their minds, like it did yours right away, that potentially they're not dealing with Chris at all. Like there is a way to do this. If you were to send an email and ask personal questions, if they evade it, then then you know something's up. Because he's already evaded other questions and just started talking about other stuff. Right. So now if you are asking personal questions now and those are also um, being evaded, then you know for 100% certain that you are not dealing with Chris. That something is wrong. Chris is not where he says he is. Exactly. And you know what's so funny is that's exactly what they do. Really? Yeah. Okay. So in the next email they send, they decide to test him to see if it's Chris. They asked him if he remembered their old family vacation spot, something only Chris would know. And they also asked him, like, what boat, what their boat was called that they used. And he passed the test. He responded back to Paul. Hey, bro, if this is a test question, then I'll tell you about Kelly Lake. He knew where they would go as kids when they lived in Santa Cruz. And this made the family feel better. They were relieved that it was Chris. So although they were sad to not see him for the holidays, it came as a comfort to them because they had panicked there for a second. So what do you think? Okay. You know how I am. You know that I'm a very social person. Yes. All right. So I'm going to use it to my advantage to figure this out. You know that if I don't know anybody, I always try to find common ground and try to have a conversation. Right. So. If we're dealing with somebody that knows, like I said, him long enough, you don't think that someone like Chris might talk and be free and open with things that he have has done or places that he has been? Oh, yeah, That's totally. why this is easy. I think when he connects with anyone about something he loves, like he's all about like water sports, he's going to talk to people about everything. So I feel like he has probably most likely communicated with a lot of people about his like wakeboarding, like all like his wakeboarding past, right. his past on Kelly Lake. Not only that, but let's just, let's just say here, if we continue with my theory, let's say it is Ed. Let's say Ed's doing the emails. Okay. It would give him a lot of insight because they've been friends for a while. They're business partners. The 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 brother of Chris, are, it also works at the company. That's true. He knows that their spot is at Costa Rica to go surfing. There's probably been so many conversations shared among the three of them even where if someone's trying to be Chris, it's possible. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. So you're saying that the person that could know him the most could potentially be Ed. So you're putting your bet on Ed for this? I'm putting my bet on Ed because I think Chris is a very carefree and laid back guy. And I think that he over time talked enough uh, to Ed where it could have made this easier. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. So then after Christmas, the family received a final email from Chris. It said... I've withdrawn all my funds and will not be on record with the U.S. anymore. It was always my intention to move when I had the opportunity, and when given the chance, I took it. I'm happy where I am now. 
and after that, all communications with Chris came to a halt. He had been sending multiple emails a week since June, and they just stopped. That's that's crazy. Yeah. The next time Steve Smith would hear from his son or about his son was the following month in January of 2011. It was Chris's landlord. He had called Steve because he was listed as Chris's emergency contact. He was looking to notify Chris because he couldn't get in touch with him at the phone number that he had given that he was in default of his lease because he had not paid his rent. Now, again, this is also something else that just doesn't sound like Chris because all of his belongings were still at the apartment. His family, although deeply saddened by Chris's silence, think it's what he needs for his mental health, so they don't pry into his life. They continued to email him and try to call this number that they had, but there was never any response. And in the meantime, the troubles that Chris spoke of in his emails for the 800 exchange finally hit the company. And because of various lawsuits, they were forced to close their doors. So Paul got laid off. After three months of radio silence, the Smiths had enough. They wanted to know what had happened to Chris. So they reached out to the State Department. They presented them with all of the information in hopes that they would be able to help them at least discover the last country that their son had visited through the use of his passport so they could go there and attempt to find him. Now, the State Department did do an investigation. Um, They answered the family and said that they were going to look into it and tell them the last location visited by Chris. But when the State Department came back with their report, their news was that, unfortunately, Chris had not used his passport or traveled since before June of 2010. Right. And this is where I was trying to tell you before. This is just one step, and I'm sure a million, where there needs to be a trace of this. Unless this guy just jumped on a on a on a ship, like secretly without anybody else knowing, he wouldn't be able to get to these countries. Right. So I, I just that's very weird. And I don't blame the family for you know, not really following too many things up because I they don't want to be intrusive. They don't want right. to cross that line of an adult, you know, living his life. Exactly. So like I, I I don't blame them at all. But especially when you're in correspondence. Yeah. Like this is a a very rare, bizarre situation. Now, if we were to get the police involved, I would think that the best thing to do is to find out these the legal proceedings and what's been going on legally between the two companies or whatever other companies are involved right. because then that would show who is responsible for whatever's going on. Because are we dealing with a situation where they want maybe the people in the company or who, who higher-ups wanted to blame things that was taking uh, going on on, let's say, Chris? Right. Like, we don't know what's going on. So, But there could be a paper trail within legal documents maybe. Maybe. Like, I'm just throwing things out there. Sorry. Well, that's what they're going to do. Okay. Well. No, you always predict it. Oh, yeah. You're doing You're doing the right thing. <laughs> so the family was advised to then file a missing persons report, which they did in late March of 2011. Because Chris's last known residence was in Laguna Beach, that was where they would have to file the report. 
Now, this was a bizarre missing persons case because Chris Smith had now technically been missing for 10 months. And the family had gotten emails from someone claiming to travel and be Chris. And they still didn't know if this person was, like, did he take on a new identity? Like, there was a lot of open-ended questions regarding this missing persons investigation. So the first thing that the investigators attempt to do is establish when Chris was last seen and by whom. To find this out, they would have to interview everyone who knew him. All former employees of the 800 Exchange and Chris's friends were also questioned. From them, they were able to determine that the last person to see Chris had been his former business partner, Ed Shin. Ed told them that he had met with Chris on Friday, June 4, 2010. When they met, Chris had signed papers that completed Chris's half of the business to be sold to Ed. The investigators asked questions of Ed that would help them understand what Chris's mindset was that day. Ed told them that it all worked out great, that they had made a lot of money with the company, and this was always something that Chris had talked about. It was never like this company was going to be long-term theirs. He always said once they made their money, he was going to sell his half and take off with it. So this had been the long-term plan for the 800 exchange. He said that it also made sense that Chris had decided to leave when he did because the 800 exchange had been involved with lawsuits involving embezzlement and with uh, issues with a competitor and the battle over intellectual property regarding LG technologies. But that's a pretty big deal, though. Yeah. Now, who now do we know who was embezzling? We are going to find that out. Okay, cool, cool. And what Ed basically says was like, things were getting hot and Chris got out of the kitchen. Okay. Ed made it a point to say that all of the lawsuits had been resolved, but it was just that Chris hated that part of the business. He was a creative and didn't like the pressure. To Ed, it seemed like he had been having a bit of a breakdown, like it was too much for him and he wanted to run, so he did. He had come to him upset, and Ed told him that if he wanted, he could just, like, if you want, I can buy your half of the company, and I can alleviate all your stress. And he said that after that, Chris seemed to, like, feel better. It seemed like there was some weight off of his shoulders. And on June 4th, Ed said everything was fine. We shook hands. We hugged. Chris said he was going to go travel the world. And... That's what he did. He took off. See, but that's a red flag because it's like someone doesn't have that reaction after a meeting of them getting out and then just say, you know what? I'm going to run away and escape my problems or escape before things get hot and run away. Right, because he had already sold it. So there was no need to get away at that point unless it was to blow off steam. Yeah, like you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. Like, I, I mean, I, I, it's weird like that... the pressure was gone. He yeah, that, sold it. Right. The pressure was gone because he was receiving his money and was leaving. I don't know. Well, or maybe he knew that it might eventually be taken away because of the lawsuit, so he wanted to spend it. Maybe. Well, it seemed like a dead end. He had been fine. 
Maybe this was a case of an adult wanting to disappear. And in this case, they were able to because they had the means to do so. Like usually when an adult wants to disappear, it's difficult. But when you're a millionaire, it's a little bit easier. Definitely. But that thought process is going to completely change when just weeks later, a private investigator was hired to work on the case, but not in the way that you think. The private investigator was hired not by the Smith family, but by the property management team at the offices where the 800 Exchange had set up offices. They were attempting a skip trace because Ed Shin had skipped out on his leasing agreement. Although he had dissolved the 800 Exchange, he had still signed a contract to lease the building for a certain amount of time. And even though their offices were no longer there, he still had to pay rent. He owed $40,000. Interesting. Because, I mean, yes, forty grand is a lot of money, but forty grand should not be a lot of money for somebody like Ed. And it is a write-off. Like, when you're leasing offices, like office space, that's a write-off to your business. So it's not like Ed personally handles the money, but I guess it's just a part of the company dissolving and having to pay off things. So maybe it is a technicality that's going to get taken care of eventually, especially like maybe if the company had to declare bankruptcy. I know a lot of things, is they are complicated. So the private investigators hired by this property management team to find out when they're going to be getting their money where Ed Shin is because he doesn't start up a new company yet. Okay. So the PI asked if the offices that the 800 exchange once occupied had been leased out yet. And luckily they had not. So they went there to see if anything had been left behind that might indicate where Shin had moved on to. When the investigators arrived at the offices, they saw that the rooms were in good shape. There was fresh paint on the walls. Um, The carpets had obviously been cleaned. However, once they gave the place a closer look, they found something very troubling. What was it? Blood. Where? On the door jam, they noticed a little bit of blood spatter. And on the part of the door that closes into the frame, like the very, not on like the faces of the door, but on the the sides, there was a lot of like spots of blood. And it wouldn't have been seen, like if the door shut, you can't see it at all. So it's not something that people often clean. And as they looked more and more throughout the offices, they were finding these little spatters of blood. So they're like, that's weird. And it's also out of their league. So they made a phone call to the Laguna Beach Police Department. Good call. Yes. They told them that they had found blood at the offices of a property management company that had hired them. And they thought that maybe it could be the scene of a crime. So detectives and crime scene technicians went over to the scene and the site was sealed off and swabbed for evidence. The first thing they need to do is send it over to their labs to determine if it's even human blood. And if it is human blood, then an investigation will begin. So while the detectives are waiting for the DNA to come back, they find out from other detectives in the police station, the detectives that are working the disappearance of Chris Smith, 
that, oh, you're testing that DNA at offices of Ed Shin. Well, Ed Shin was one of our witnesses in our missing persons case. So the detectives kind of communicate and they're like, huh, that's odd. It's a very weird coincidence. Yes. And (laughs) it is always the belief of detectives that coincidences just don't happen. And it just seemed to fit a missing person and a mysterious discovery of blood. Right. I mean, you can't get any better than that. No. This case might as well solve itself. Yeah. (laughs) And another person who was involved in the investigation was the original private investigator from the property management company that found the blood to begin with. He felt compelled to speak with the Smith family. And after talking to Chris's parents, he also felt compelled to take on the case for free because he felt so bad for them. Oh, it was really nice of uh, him. It is nice. And he's a really good private investigator. The family was very grateful for the help. So they gave the private investigator everything they had. The documents, the emails, the report from the State Department. And it was actually a lot of documentation. The private investigator reached out to the family and said, After reviewing all the documentation, the only thing that stands out to me are the test questions, like that scenario. He felt like Chris did not completely answer the question. He said something vague about Kelly Lake, but a lot of people could have known that, like you said. The question that was asked of him was, where did we vacation and what boat did we use? And he was asked this by his father. And then two weeks later, it was bizarre because he had emailed Paul and said that he thought someone was, and I quote, doing something weird with his email. So he told his brother, I want to ask you a test question. And what's the test question? What boat did we use on Kelly Lake? Oh, man. Okay. Right. So now it's whoever is pretending to be Chris is fishing for information from Paul so he can answer the test question that Steve had for him. Right. Weird. Uh, It is weird. It's very strange. And I think this confirms that it totally was not Chris. The whole time. Communicating. Right. Yeah, definitely not the whole time. So the PI thinks that this has to do with the blood that was found at the office. So he looked into Chris's work and financial history to see if there was a clue there or a motive somewhere, because it seemed like in the emails he had been alluding to a problem with someone regarding the company. So in delving into Chris's history, he found out that in 2008, he was extremely helpful to LG Technologies in the lead generation field. He made them a lot of money. So after he met Ed, the two of them founded the 800 Exchange in 2009. And when their fledgling company was wildly successful in its first year, people did look at them with jealousy and suspicion. And that makes sense. So obviously, LG Technologies is going to be angry and they're going to have some questions about intellectual property because if Chris developed these technologies while he was working with them, technically that belongs to the company. Right. And that's always a problem, you know? Right. So because they had been so successful and because he believed that 
he was being wronged, the owner of LG Technologies, where both Chris and Ed had worked, believed that technology and assets had been taken from his company to help aid in the success of the 800 exchange. So he was suing them for stealing leads, money, and business. Because of these allegations, the district attorney's office also looked into filing criminal charges against Ed Shin for embezzlement. From the other company? From the other company. Okay. Because there was something shady going on. Okay. It was found that Ed had, in fact, embezzled money, and he was placed on house arrest and was ordered to pay close to $1 million in restitution in order for him to stay out of jail. Okay. (laughs) I'm getting this picture in my mind that with this being known now, if Chris was to go to Ed and say, hey, listen, I want my money. I would like to get out. Was it because he found out what Ed did or was doing? He knew. Okay. So Chris was still involved with the company when Ed was placed on house arrest and was said that he would have to pay a million in restitution. And this wasn't the house arrest thing wasn't necessarily too much of a problem because Edson had to pay the restitution and he had a family. He was allowed to go to work. So his house arrest looked differently, but that was going to put a tremendous amount of stress on the 800 exchange. And you're right. That would put even more stress if Chris were to say, I want to leave now. Right. And then he doesn't have the money. If he's paying back restitution, he doesn't have enough money to buy out his part so he so chris could leave yeah now could chris have turned around and said well if you can't pay me um i'm gonna expose everything that you've been doing and you'd Uh, be facing more trouble i'm sure there's more there of course because if they're just finding out about that i'm sure there's way more now could that be a motive for ed to have killed chris potentially you know that's you know a potential uh route we could go also i want to add when investigators start going deeper here, I want them to try to find out where the emails were coming from via the IP address. They do do that. Okay, because that would tell you where these emails were being you know, um, sent from. Right. Well, remember, a, f- a full-scale investigation like that has not started yet because they're still waiting for the DNA test to determine whether it's human blood. Right. Sorry, I'm jumping the gun yeah. a little bit. But- Once it gets started, that's the direction yeah. it will go. My brain is literally like... Going at a million miles an hour. I got to pull it back a little. (laughs) So the PI was thinking, yes, of course, all of these responsibilities and and repercussions fall on Ed's shoulders. But and Chris was found to have done no wrongdoing in, in any of this. But it had to have scared Chris about his future because Ed was his business partner. So around this time, the DNA results are going to come back from the blood spatter. And they found that the blood in the offices of the 800 exchange was human blood. At that point, the investigation was passed further up the food chain, and it went from the Laguna Beach Police Department to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And they are going to launch a full-scale forensic search of the former offices. This involved the pulling up of the carpets and complete luminol testing of the offices. And they found a lot of blood. It had soaked deep into the padding of the carpet, 
Like when they pulled up the carpet, it looked like there was a bloodbath on the padding. So much so that it had soaked through to the cement floor underneath. And with the luminol test, they saw blood all over the walls, ceiling, and desks in three rooms. Three different rooms. It it looked like a massacre had occurred. That's pretty crazy to have, like, that much of blood everywhere. Yeah. Something bad happened there. I, I want to say, like, is that struggle maybe? Like a, like a crazy struggle? Potentially. Instead of, like, just like a, like a gun? Like, I don't know. It definitely wasn't just a gun wound because it's all over the place. Unless someone was shot and then they ran throughout the building. Yeah. Okay. So the blood from the office was tested and it was determined to be a match for Chris Smith. By this point, it was the summer of 2011. Chris had been missing for an entire year. Because of the amount of blood found at the scene, the investigators told the Smith family, and although it was hard to hear, that they believed that this missing person's case just became a murder investigation because there's no way he survived that amount of blood loss. The family, although devastated, was relieved that they were beginning to get answers, and they were finally allowed to start grieving for their son and brother. But one thing bothered them, and it bothered the investigators too. If Chris had been murdered, then who had they been talking to? The detectives from the sheriff's department went to speak with Chris's landlord, and he told them that he had seen Chris's Range Rover outside of the complex months after June 4th when Chris had been last seen and the rent had been paid for a while. So there was nothing like super suspicious about this. Um, It wasn't until like that paid in advancement wore off that he then contacted Steve Smith. So that was interesting that they thought like, okay, whoever killed Chris was seemed to have been driving his car and living in his apartment. I mean, that's very strange. Very much. So next, the sheriff's department had their tech experts track the IP address of the emails. See, you're always you're always ahead oh, of it. Yeah. <laughs> and they determined that the emails came from a computer in Southern California. Was it was it his house arrest? It was his actual house? No, it wasn't. They could only determine that it was a computer in Southern California. So it was like coming from like internet cafes and stuff like that. Like oh, not okay. like act- an actual location. Gotcha. But the person was in Orange County. At first they thought it was Paul. They thought it was Paul? Yeah, they, they potentially thought it could be the brother. But his computer was checked and they um, they were able to determine that it wasn't Paul. Okay, I mean, well, that's good. I mean, let's rule out... The, you know, the ones the that we brother. know. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what they always start with investigations in family. It's sad to say, yes. but it's true. But while the sheriffs were doing their investigation, so was the private investigator. He had gone to Carfax to see if Chris's Range Rover had been serviced or stolen. He found that the car had been repossessed in San Jose, which is about seven hours north. So after the vehicle had been repossessed, it had been sold at auction at a dealership. The San Jose of it all was what the private investigator found interesting. So he went to the neighborhood from which the Range Rover had been repossessed, and he asked around about the car that had seemingly been abandoned, and he asked if anyone knew about Chris Smith, 
or the car that had been there. And he lucked out because one of the people that he spoke to in the neighborhood, a man by the name of Kenny Kraft, said that he did know about the car because he had been the one to drive it. He claimed that the car had been given to him to use and the car was towed actually outside his house. And it seemed like Kenny Kraft was going to be really tight-lipped about everything. Like, he wouldn't say who gave him the car. He wouldn't really answer the private investigator's questions. So the private investigator went back to the Smith family and asked them, like, do you guys know who Kenny Kraft is? And Paul answered right away. He said, I know who Kenny Kraft is. That's Ed Shin's assistant. Get out of here. Yep. So this information was given to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And of course, they bring in Kenny Kraft for questioning. Kraft told the detectives that Ed had told him to park the Range Rover at the John Wayne Airport in long-term parking. But instead, he drove it up to San Jose and hung out there for a while. Like after the 800 exchange like dissipated, that's where Kenny Kraft went. He went to San Jose. So he took it. Instead of leaving it in long-term parking, he took it. That's so weird. And I mean, and this sounds like planning to me. Well, you can't have someone else clean up your messes. True. You know? And that was not all. Kraft had said he also um, was given the keys to Chris's apartment by Ed in the fall of 2010, months after Chris had gone missing. He said that Ed had told him that the apartment was now a corporate apartment and that he could live there for a while. Ed had told them that he could do this after he learned that Kenny had been couch surfing with his friends. Ed had done this after he learned that Kenny had been couch surfing and living with friends. So Kraft, not having anywhere to live, took advantage of the situation and he lived in the apartment for a while. And while he lived in the apartment, he did drive Chris Smith's Range Rover and he did help Ed dispose of clothes of Chris Smith's. Chris Smith's. That's a hard one. <laughs> let, um, let it go, guys. It's yeah. been a long time. It's been a long day. I can't believe this because this is so disgusting. Yes. I mean, because now you know, dude, that you are involved in getting rid of somebody's life. You have to know that something bad happened to this man because all of his belongings are still in this house. Yes. You're getting rid of evidence. You're living in your, technically, your boss's house. Well, Ed told him that Chris had left just like every he had told everybody else. I get but that. He's, he's, ignorance is bliss, Yeah, I guess one could say. And the rent had been paid for a while. And this explained why the landlord had seen the Range Rover. That makes sense now. All of the information that Kenny Kraft had given them implicated one person, Ed Shen. But why? If the man owed over $1 million, wouldn't he need Chris to help him make that money so he could pay it off and finally get out of house arrest? It just didn't add up. Yet. At this point, a forensic accountant was brought in to look at the books of the 800 exchange. And they were able to determine that Chris Smith had never been paid his buyout money. 
which we knew. We knew that he never was paid. And that was odd because in several interviews, like they could finally get Ed Shin on something because Shin had told the police several times he had paid Chris Smith. Correct. So now they have him on a lie. The investigators wanted to gain more information about Ed. So they began to tail him. And obviously, it was a really short tale because the only place he could go was work. Well, shortly after they begin to tail Ed Shin, and despite the fact that he was on house arrest, he decided to board a plane headed for Canada. Wait, but he's on house arrest? Yeah. He's breaking the law. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. He's trying to... Get away. Get away. So this is on August 28th, 2011. He was arrested on a plane and brought in for questioning at the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Now, they didn't want to aggravate him, so they chose to put him at ease by making him think that they had only brought him in because of his parole violation. So he was not to leave the state, so they just wanted to talk to him about it. And instantly, because this was videotaped, you could see Shin relax when they are only asking him questions about his parole. And it was probably also the fact that they they kind of had him in an, a seating area versus an interrogation room. So it put him at ease a lot. And he explained that there had been some confusion. He said that he was allowed he was on house arrest, but he was allowed to work. And the trip to Canada was a business trip. So he thought he was allowed to go. OK, dude. No, Ed, <laughs> you're not. Yeah. So once he seemed completely disarmed, they began to probe him about other things. They asked him if he had ever been questioned by the police before during his probation. And he admitted that he had been interviewed by the Laguna Beach Police Department because his former business partner had gone missing. They asked him what he told those detectives, and he said he told them that he had no idea where Chris was, that he had given him his money They said goodbye, hugged, and that was all. And this is when the investigators thought it would be the perfect time to bring up the blood evidence. And they said, well, if you just hugged him goodbye, then how did his blood get all over the walls, door, ceiling, and carpet? Yeah, explain this one, buddy. That's not a hug. Yeah. So now he was flustered. He knew what he was really being questioned about. He said he didn't know how his blood got anywhere and they were stern at this point by saying you know what ed that's just not going to cut it and they decided to press him one more time to up the pressure but ed shin folded and told the detectives that he wanted his attorney and they were basically like well okay well then we can't help you and they arrested him for the murder of chris smith well I think we're getting somewhere here. Yeah, it's about time. Do you know what I was thinking? <clears throat> I know it might not have anything to do with this case, but I think this would actually maybe be cool for some of our audience because I don't know if they know this because I didn't. It is actually possible for a company to take out life insurance policies on their employees, which I didn't know oh, that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I thought that that was just kind of like BS, but I, I've, I've heard of companies doing that. Well, especially if they're major, like, creative contributors to the, to yeah. the business. Yeah, so could you imagine that he had a life insurance policy on uh, on Chris and then tried to kill him to have, get the insurance money? That would be a crazy plot twist, but that's not the case. No, I know that. Once again, I yeah. want to preface, I, I'm just 
you know. Well, don't give people ideas, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm we're just, trying. I'm I just know trying to I tell people. I know we're a true crime podcast, but we do not condone that. No, no, no. I'm just trying to say that I didn't know that companies could do that. And obviously, he was part of a company. It, I didn't know that either. So that is very interesting. Yeah. Trying to give some little tidbits of information for our fun fa- facts for our fans. Yes. So after about a week, Ed Shin and his lawyer made a request to speak with the detectives and the district attorney. He was ready to talk and eager to tell his side of the story. He told them that on June 4th, 2010, he and Chris had scheduled a meeting to come to an agreement on the business separation. He explained that things had been very tense at the office, and Chris had not been happy with all of the hot water that Ed had landed their company in a company that he was also associated with and he had gotten his brother involved in. So this is not just hurting his own reputation, but also his brother's. And he was upset with Ed about that. He said that at the meeting, the toll the lawsuit had been taking on them reached a fever pitch. And Chris began to yell at him. He blamed Ed for all of it and said that if it hadn't been for Ed, they would never be involved in these lawsuits and all these other stressors. As the heated conversation continued, Ed said that Chris became more confrontational, that he got in his face. And Ed told him, dude, I need you to sit down because this won't end well. And according to Ed, this is when Chris grabbed him and they got into a physical confrontation that took them throughout the office All the while, they were violently colliding with office furniture, the walls, the door, and that's how the blood got everywhere. He said that at one point, once they they finally somehow, not finally, but they somehow got into Chris's office, he shoved Chris backwards and he slammed his head on the corner of the desk and that's how blood got everywhere. And he knew instantly that he was dead. So what? Do you think about his story? I mean, if I'm going to be quite frank, I think it's a lot of BS. I think it's crap because if that's the case, where's his injuries that would make you believe that there was some sort of tussle that th- did go throughout the whole place? Okay. Nothing seemed broken or out of place when the cops got there. I mean, I know they cleaned up and stuff, or they tried to. Well, there when they got there to do the investigations... Yeah, everything was completely clean. Like everything except for the furniture had been removed. Right. So, I mean, furniture might have damage if you're bumping into it, if you're, you know, if all these things are taking place. But the biggest thing is where are your injuries? Right. Because are you, are you going to then say that you were the aggressor and, and you're the one that were doing all the harm to him and not, and you weren't receiving any kind of damage? Yeah. Like legally, that's called like mutual combat. And, he could have called the police and it wouldn't have been he could have walked away with just manslaughter it's just brutal i i, I don't know I, it doesn't make sense it doesn't really vibe it was, with me it's very intense yeah yeah so ed said that he then panicked this story now gets wild okay okay yep and he called a friend from las vegas that he knew took care of things like this so the detectives stop him there what guy And he said he knew a very, very shady guy that was involved with things like this. So they asked him for his name and he told them that he doesn't really know the guy's name, but he knows them. He knows him as Johnny Vegas. And 
When he called this man and told him about the situation, Johnny Vegas put him in contact with another man who said that he could help him. And he said, I don't know the name of that man either. He vaguely described what he looked like and said he spoke with an Eastern European accent. He said that the two of them had met on a street corner and Ed paid him thousands of dollars in cash to dispose of Chris's body and they agreed to never speak again after that. He said the next day he went back to the offices and everything was spotless. Or so he thought. He then admitted to covering his tracks. He said he had been the one sending emails to Chris's family. All the while, he had Paul working at the 800 exchange until it closed its doors. So he was working with the man he just killed, working with his brother. Yeah, it's disgusting. And Paul was working at the place where his brother had just been murdered. It's so sad. And Ed Shin was charged with murder for financial gain and was held without bail because of the little stunt he tried to pull boarding that plane for Canada. But now the detectives were tasked with filling in the holes of the rest of Ed Shin's story. This whole contact from Las Vegas just sounded ludicrous, like a cutscene from Casino. Like, Johnny Vegas, really? Yeah, I mean, it's all made up. It's all fabricated here. I mean, listen... I hate to be that guy, but do things like this, can things like this happen? Yes, you know, especially back in the day, sure. But we're dealing with 2011, okay? Well, yeah, it happened in 2010. 10, okay. But still, same, yeah. One year I'm just trying to say, to say that it doesn't exist and things like this can't happen, I mean, I don't want to say that because it can. But I don't think it did. I think we're dealing with his assistant being a contributor of getting rid of the body. And the reason why I say that is because he received a place to live. He had Chris's car, which would have, would have been a way for them to move his body. What better way? The guy's car. I mean, you know. Okay. So I, I think the assistant might have had more to do with this than maybe that we uh, first uh, thought of, you know. Okay. But I don't think Johnny Vegas and some Eastern European dude – <laughs> you know, like it's diehard, you know, I know. Um, you know, is, is doing all this. It just it, once again, I think he's trying to make it look like there's other people involved, not just him. And hey, listen, I can give you information and everything that I know, you know, to maybe lighten my sentence or to make me try to get out of this right. as much as possible or to lower or to lessen my charge. Right. That's what I think. Well, the police are able to track down a man that went by the nickname of Johnny Vegas only a day after Ed's confession, and they interviewed him. They went to Nevada to talk to him. Wait, so there really is a Johnny Vegas? There is a Johnny Vegas. Uh, All right, all right. right, But hold on. You don't know the story yet. So he was very confused and appalled by what Ed Shin had accused him of. He said... That story is insane. I'm not some mob guy with connections. I'm a concierge in Las Vegas. And Ed Shin is one of my best clients. Ed Shin, ladies and gentlemen, has a gambling problem. Oh, wow. Okay. So you another piece of that together now, too. Wow. This is crazy. So Johnny Vegas went on to say that Ed Shin was a high roller and he loved to be comped nice rooms and have girls sent up there. 
and in return, he would blow a lot of money at the casino. This confirmed what the detectives thought. This Eastern European body disposal story was bogus. It had been Shin himself, and maybe an accomplice, that helped him clean up that office. They knew that if they found Chris Smith's body, things would look worse for Shin. So they got a good break when Shin's cell phone records from the night of the murder finally came in. They had asked for them because this would confirm that he had called Johnny Vegas on the night day of the murder and this other cleanup guy. Now, there had been no call to Johnny Vegas that day or another phone number. Um, The only number that Ed Shin had called the night of the murder, basically in the middle of the night, he made a phone call to roadside assistance. So using the call, they were able to triangulate his location. When he placed the call, he was located in Boulevard, California, which is a tiny town of just over 300 residents located just north of the Mexican border in the desert. Okay, so he disposed of the body. Well, this could be a blow. If Shin had disposed of Chris's body in Mexico, the chances of law enforcement finding it were going to be slim. But maybe he hadn't. Maybe he had just disposed of it in the deserts close to the border. So a very large-scale search was done involving helicopters and aerial searches. But unfortunately, they were never able to find the body of Chris Smith, even to this day. That's really sad. Very sad. And you know what? You're probably right about that. I mean, the police are right about that because if he was on, (laughs) if he was on house arrest, right? Just like look what happened with him when he tried to go to uh, to Canada. Mm -hmm. If he was to go to Mexico, they would have detained him there. Right. So most likely he didn't go to Mexico. I mean, we're talking about a part of like where the he would have been able to just walk and drive over into the Mexican border. It's not like um, a big like border control area, in two, oh. especially in 2010. Gotcha. Okay. So Ed Shin pled not guilty to his charges. So the case went to trial. It would take six years from the time of Ed Shin's arrest for the trial to begin in 2018. During the trial, Ed took the stand and told the same story to the jurors that he did to the detectives years prior. The prosecution said the defense's claim that this was mutual combat is incorrect, and the forensic evidence and Ed Shin's actions afterwards proved it. The scenario they laid out for the jury went as follows. Now, this is based on the forensic evidence. Chris went into the office when people were not there to get some things done, which he did often, and Ed had been waiting for him. He hit him over the head with something, surprising him, and then a struggle ensued, a struggle which Chris eventually lost because of the initial blow to his head and the blood that he lost over time. Chris had heartbreakingly fought for his life. Then, when he fell, that explained the large pool of blood. They claimed that nothing else would explain the extreme amounts of blood 
all around the office. And if it had been mutual combat, like Ed said, then it wouldn't have been that extreme amount of blood throughout the office. It would be like maybe little drops here or there, like happens in a fight. Right. There was so much blood everywhere that he had to have been hit in the head initially. They also stated that they believed that Chris was trying to get to the phone in his office based on the blood spatter in the room. And another issue was if it was mutual combat and the two were fighting, kind of like you brought up, some of the blood that was in the office would have been Ed's. But all of the blood samples that were taken throughout the offices were only determined to be the blood of Chris Smith. Ed Shin's blood was nowhere there. Right, which that does sound like maybe Ed could have hit him enough to subdue him or it was like a sneak attack kind of thing where he didn't see it coming and that's where the like maybe one or two hits was enough to pretty much incapacitate him. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because that's, I mean, that's the only thing that would explain why Ed had no injuries and there was no Ed's DNA anywhere. Correct. Yeah. Then Ed removed his body, took him somewhere they don't know, and then went back to clean up the office. He then emailed Chris's family for months, tormenting them. That's disgusting. It's, it always is so disturbing to me, these cases, where the killer contacts the victim's family. It, well, it brings it to another level. That's of, why. Of just, like, disgustingness. Yes. He even still tormented them because the Smith family, even though they should not feel this way, the Smith family has stated that they felt guilty that they didn't realize something was wrong sooner. But they didn't do anything wrong. They were giving their son the space you would give any adult. But they just felt bad, and Ed Shin did that to them, too. Oh, yeah. No, the family has nothing to feel bad about. So why? That's the question that's left. Well, Chris had wanted out of the company. He was not going to sink with Ed's ship. But Ed would never be able to pay the million dollars in restitution and pay Chris. So he murdered him instead. Yep. I mean, what other motive is there really, right? Right. That's the best one. Money. Yep. After this, um, he told Kenny Kraft to take the car, put it somewhere, live in the apartment. Kenny Kraft does testify against Ed Shin, and the district attorney's office does drop charges against Kenny Kraft. They had charged him for accessory to murder. But they spoke with the Smith family and to get Kenny Kraft to testify. And after they found out that really the only thing he did was help dispose of the clothing, they the family agreed with the district attorney to drop the charges of accessory to murder. So the jury deliberated for less than half an hour. That's fast. That's very fast. Ed Shin was found guilty of first degree murder. It was clear throughout the trial that Ed Shin cared only about one thing, money. It was clear throughout the trial that Ed Shin cared only about money and maintaining his lifestyle. He was not the family man that he projected himself to be. He was a dishonest gambler, 
womanizer, and horrible business partner. He didn't want to stop doing what he had been doing. And if Chris backed out, he wouldn't be able to maintain that. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Chris's family is at peace knowing what had happened to him, but they want to know where his remains are so they could provide for him a proper burial, one he deserves. But they don't know if they will ever get that, as Ed Shin refuses to admit where he put his business partner's body. I mean, that is unbelievable that even after you've been charged and sentenced that you still and there's no chance of you getting out right like there's nothing that you could do man like they got your number that you still want to harm this family by not letting them know where you put his body not only did you take somebody from them you impersonated the person that you killed and talked to this family for almost a year yeah made them worried about the you know chris you know, you said that he was going to commit suicide and, and, and do all these things, right? And yeah. then you make them worry and all this stuff. And then you don't want to tell them where the body is? Right. What are you? Like, that is infuriating. Right. Like, he, his story is, I was trying to flee to Mexico. I wasn't getting rid of his body. But then you came back? It doesn't make sense. Nothing you, That's does. where you were getting rid of his body. Yep. That's... Sick. Very sad. So hopefully the family can get... I know that they're recovering and healing from what happened to Chris Smith, but they'll never be able to fully, right? Because this man's life was taken away and he was such a bright light in this world. But I hope they get some peace in getting his body eventually because I think that really would help them really close the chapter. Absolutely. Okay, before we say goodbye, we just want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. So thank you so much for joining Patreon to Nicola Davis, Beatrice Salcedo, Danny Johnson, Pierce Butler, Chloe Eggleston, Karen Cox, Katie Payne, Leanne Owen, ADB, Ashley, Heather Conaway, Hannah Quinlan, Janine, Jennifer Montalvo, Maureen McGinnis, Cody Dure, Marissa, Alyssa Rose, Monica Marchese, Ella Hoffman, Sarah Jenis, Kylie Cruz, Becky Pendre, Amanda Bradshaw, Carolyn Bodewell, Elsie Manor, Sophie, Erica Adler, Christine Conklin, Cash, Amy Powers, Patty, Sandra, Izzy, Ashley, Rob Christian, Tawny Cohn, Dee Miller, Janet Ocasio, Large Hank, Danielle Banton, Lotus, Katie, Emma Alette, and Natasha. Thank you guys so much for joining, and we hope you're enjoying the episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.